Welcome to the LSU NCBRT Preparedness Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Markle. I'm a curriculum development specialist here at NCBRT, and I work in collaboration with subject matter experts to create valuable and timely training for the responder community. The National Center for Biomedical Research and Training provides mobile training to both the national and international emergency response community. Today on the podcast, we're continuing our conversation with Dr. April Foreman and Roy Bethke about the potential solutions to some of the challenges that officers face in responding to mental health crises in the community. Roy Bethke is the chief of police in Cherry Valley, Illinois. He spent 28 years and retired as deputy police chief in Buffalo Grove, Illinois, and he also chaired the education and training committee for the Illinois Association of Chiefs of Police. He is also a subject matter expert and instructor for LSU NCBRT. Thank you to Dr. Foreman and Roy for coming on the podcast and sharing with us today. So some communities are proposing ideas for how to handle mental health crisis calls, including removing police from responding to these types of incidents. So do you think that this is a viable solution? So I think Dr. Foreman's example of using technology is a really good solution. I loved her approach to the collaboration and kind of that holistic idea of how we're going to respond to communities in crisis. Um, I think removing the police from the equation is incredibly dangerous. Uh, You can see thousands, maybe millions of videos on YouTube of what appear to be very simple law enforcement citizen contacts that turn violent in a split second with a, a bad outcome for either the police officer or someone in the public. So I think removing law enforcement isn't going to be a successful uh, solution to these mental health problems. But Dr. Foreman had identified this idea of using technology. So Springfield, Missouri has actually been involved uh, really in a pilot and now a full run program since 2013 with Burrell uh, Behavioral Health where police officers actually carry with them iPads and using Skype or FaceTime, they actually have access to clinicians uh, to be able to help people communicate on the spot. In some cases, they'll just simply hand the iPad to the person in crisis. You can't do that with everyone, right? So sometimes it's, uh, you know, three, four feet away, just let them speak to someone who's able to give them the help that they need that's not a police officer. And I think there's another concept, right? I think we talked about this idea that so many people, especially in the juvenile justice system, are really just in some type of a mental health crisis. They don't have the support or the resources. But in Fairfax County, Virginia, they've been working on a program for a long time where they have actually got a different processing center for low-level crimes, especially related to juveniles, where they can be processed and then provided specific mental health care rather than being processed at a county jail and having to spend time there or being picked up there or having a criminal record. I think we need to be careful to to remove that stigma that Dr. Forbin was talking about earlier, right? I think we've done an okay job talking about removing stigma. I don't know that, that everyone actually believes that that has happened, right? Some people won't admit that they have a mental health problem because they'll then be classified, put into that bucket and, and you know, wants to be classified for life of, of having that role. So we have to destigmatize this idea of getting help. But if we were able to provide a collaborative solution upfront to everyone equally, rather than separate out, this is a police response, this is a mental health response, uh, to, again, doing it holistically. The police, generally we want to serve and protect. How do we do that? I could take you down one more rabbit hole of of one of the challenges that we face in law enforcement is a simplistic view of data collection. You could easily go back to the COPS grants of the early 1990s. 
where money was provided to law enforcement to provide resources that were measurable through X's and O's. How many tickets did the officer write because we were providing grant funding for traffic safety or for uh, drunk driving enforcement, which worked really well, by the way, right? So we reduced drunk driving related fatalities tremendously. But in doing that, we oversimplified the data collection point of what makes a police officer effective. It's easy at the end of every month to count how many check marks are in a column for tickets or arrests or public contacts or warnings. It is much more challenging to quantify successfully in today's world what makes a police officer successful when they've resolved mental someone's mental health crisis because not everyone sees that, right? It, it's in a police report. So how do you then give credit to police officers and identify the ones who are doing really, really well? The other challenge is today, everything is on video. Whether it's on a body camera video, whether it's on a squad car video, which isn't a new technology, it's been around for almost 30 years, um, or videos at every corner, every ATM. And the problem that we see with video, which by the way, most police officers and police leaders absolutely support, the problem is it's a one-dimensional view. It has no other senses, right? It doesn't smell, it doesn't feel fear. So often people rush to judgment based on the video. And when you see the number of mental health related outcomes that, that you know, cases that are handled poorly by the police, or at least the outcome is, is you know, poor, or even from a police perspective, people look at the videos and then rush to judgment. And that's not helpful to us either. And I would say that to some extent, measuring police officer behavior is helpful if, if you want to understand police officers. But if you're trying to have a community outcome, to some extent, you know, if you're providing funding to a whole unit and you want, um, and, and I know that Roy's, Roy will often, you know, explain the jobs of really managing and telling the difference between high average and not so well performing officers. But what you want to say is when our police, uh, when our unit uh, staffs this way, when we have these kinds of policies, when we manage ourselves this way, we get these kinds of community mental health outcomes. So that when we're making, you know, you know, if it's if it's not numbers of tickets written, but it is that we provide better training, we make sure that officers have uh, have some extra time to to get folks to emergency rooms. Uh, we we do more community outreach. We have better partnerships with mental health and with the crisis network. Whatever it is that they do, that then measuring the community outcomes because that's what you want to have, right? And is it? Uh, I don't know that communities. Well, maybe they do. Roy Roy might correct me. I can't imagine that I would be proud to say that I live in a community where police officers write more tickets and do more crisis visits than other places, because that could mean something else is going wrong in my community. But what I would love to say, see is that we have, you know, better referrals to crisis care, better resolution, you know, re, you know, re, reduced, like reduced high, uh, high risk interactions in our community, um, you know, you know, Better reduction of, of um, better reduction of like high danger suicide uh, or welfare check visits. Like there's there's probably some way that we could measure what's happening in community and reward um, good management of various um, law enforcement precincts for like just for doing the right thing. I, I think, well, Roy may correct me, but my experience of law enforcement units is that they're often really good 
team players and that getting a team outcome seems to make a lot of sense, both for the community and for the law enforcement team. But I would really wonder what Roy would think of that. Well, I think the first part of the conversation needs to be context, right? There's 18,500 police departments, give or take a couple in the United States. Now the United States law enforcement system is unique to any law enforcement system in the world. The primary responsibility for law enforcement is intended to be local jurisdictions. As a matter of fact, more than 75% of the police departments uh, in the United States are 10, I think 10 or 12 people or less. So when you think about what does it mean to be the police and what is the role of the police and what is the makeup of the community, right? Baton Rouge is not Chicago or LA or Portland. Cherry Valley is not Rochester or uh, pick you know, a, a town. Austin, Texas isn't New York. So the, the burden becomes, what does the local government expect from the police? Granted, there are tribal law enforcement entities. There are a variety of federal law enforcement entities. All of them have different outcomes. And, and often when you see criticism in the media, the perception is that there is this national entity that is law enforcement in America. There is no such thing. We aren't the military. The military has one individual in an office in the Pentagon that's responsible for the five branches of the military that determines doctrine, training, what's important, and they get direction from Congress. Law enforcement doesn't have that. I'm the chief of police in Cherry Valley. I report to the village president who is an elected individual who reports to the village board. The village board decides what is important for the Cherry Valley Police Department to do on a daily, monthly, annual basis, and they provide funding and training so that we can achieve that. But yet, we obviously have lots of uh, regional and statewide and really national programs we're trying to participate in as well. And I think that's the significant challenge. So, so when Dr. Foreman talks about, you know, what are the potential positive outcomes? How do you measure them? It's, it's unique to every community. We would love there to be an absence of mental health issues. An absence of crime would indicate that law enforcement is doing well. I don't think we're going to get there as much as most of us would like to get there. I would love to, to not have crime. I would love to not have to deal with mental health issues. Um, I then wouldn't need to, to find more police officers, which by the way, trying to hire and find, find and hire qualified police candidates in this day and age is nearly impossible. So we're talking about different standards, different standards of training, different standards of hiring. There's been tremendous conversations about advanced degrees required for law enforcement. I frankly can't find poli qualified police officer candidates without a degree requirement. In Illinois, there's a conversation happening right now where there's a desire by some in the state legislature to require a minimum of a bachelor's degree in social work for someone to become a police officer. Our candidate pool will shrink from, from you know six to zero in a heartbeat if that's the requirement, let alone the disparity in pay for police officers. So, so to Dr. Foreman's point, I think outcomes are incredibly important to measure, but I think they have to be measured at the local level with oversight and guidance. On a I, I actually really strongly agree with that because I've lived in so many different places and I'm from rural Kansas, but I've lived in bigger cities and I, well, I've lived a lot of places and, and I really agree with that. Um, and I, and I, and I, I feel as if, uh, like when you say things like, you know, what, what would it be if we'd had no crime? 
Um, you know, when I think about how we manage um, our clinical work, it's not, we never want, for example, zero turnover in our staff because that means people aren't, you know, moving. <laughs> that means that means people aren't finding careers elsewhere. That means people are sort of coming and staying. That means we may be not cycling out folks who maybe we need to compassionately move out of where we work. And so it seems to me that there, and, and, and I, you know, I work in, in a field that ha is, can be very ambiguous. And we put a lot of statistics on it that, that there can be with some investment, some standards and some metrics that can be measured. And, and just like I talk about wanting much better public health data about mental health and suicide, it seems like there could be a better job with, with data about law enforcement. I, and I don't know how Roy would feel about that. Yeah, I would totally agree. I think we uh, generally do a, a pretty poor job of collecting data. Um, the example of that is, is the most recent use of force data collection efforts by the FBI. Um, we're really, we're, we're still talking. It's 2021. Policing has been around for a really long time in the United States. Um, and we're still having difficulty on a national level measuring use of force data. And the reason for that is what equals a use of force is different in each state based on what different state laws are. So again, that's some of the challenge. What is a use of deadly force in law enforcement? Is that a fist um, you know, during a fight from a police officer to someone who's struggling, who is armed or unarmed? Is that limited to some type of impact weapon you know, to a body part that could cause death? Clearly firearm discharges by the police would be a use of deadly force. So there's some ambiguity about what those definitions mean from a reporting standpoint. Um, but yeah, we, we need to do a better job of collecting data if we're going to understand problems and find solutions to those and, problems. And the, I, what I hope that the public learns is that, that in order to do that, you really need people who understand law enforcement, who also understand data, who also understand how to build data collection infrastructure that can be used broadly. So in a, in a large I mean, the United States is a big place, but also then can be used in these very heterogeneous places with very different funding and very different levels. I have to say, Roy, a bachelor's in social work. So I know something about vocational psychology. The folks who would often pursue a bachelor's in social work are not the same folks who would be interested in or make great law enforcement officers. And I'm quite frankly stunned by things like that. I, I can only shudder to think of the number of new pieces of legislation, not only in the state of Illinois, but coming through every state legislature, where I'm sure they are well-intentioned, but there's a complete lack of understanding of the potential outcome if any of these pieces of legislation actually are passed. And, and the Bachelors of Social Work was an easy, low-hanging fruit for me, because it's a conversation I'm currently having with some of our state legislature, um, that it, it, again, on the surface, wow, it's an idea, but the potential downsides are much, much bigger. Uh, but it does have an interesting I mean, better to partner social workers with law enforcement officers. Like, I, I'm so sorry. I'm just, I'm just stunned by this because um, we're, we're having conversations. Um, uh, so for those of you, as, as we're recording this, um, 988 as a crisis line it, there's legislation for that to happen on a national level, and they're working on rolling that out across the country. So people who will dial to talk with a crisis worker, where we might send law enforcement, by the way, um, for welfare checks like that, that's happening. And so states are gearing up and trying to plan more coordinated 
crisis care infrastructure because every country where they've done something like this, demand has doubled or tripled and we're all trying to figure out what we're going to do, right? And so I had somebody call me from Missouri, who's one of my good colleagues, and he said, I really want your opinion because I work uh, in crisis care and I work in a national organization. So it, I have some view of what it looks like in different places, right? And he, and he says, so I was thinking everybody needs a bachelor degree and I was thinking everybody needs all this. And I'm like, dude, you live in Missouri. You think there's that, like for, for folks who are going to be interested in working in call centers, do you think you have that pool. And I said, we don't have evidence that those kind that bachelor's degrees necessarily produce people with really good, um, highly like skill specific jobs. And, and we certainly don't have that in the crisis industry. And I bet you don't have that in law enforcement, but that you also need to create hiring requirements that make sense for the communities who have to hire folks because uh, in different communities where you might have call centers, you might have a lot of people with advanced degrees or you might have very little, but both places need a call center and you're going to have to give call center training to both types of hires. I find, Roy, I find this unbelievable. I'm so sorry. I know you're having these real conversations. The, the conversation has changed, right? In the last 20 years, the conversation was that police departments should primarily look like culturally, racially, the communities that they serve. That's a different conversation when suddenly you apply bachelor's of science degrees. So again, let's talk about Illinois and the various demographics from rural Illinois in the deep south of Illinois, near Missouri, right, where populations can be sparse, where, you know, you're talking primarily farm country, where police officers are making $16, $17 an hour, barely above minimum wage, you know, $27, $30,000 a year is the entry level to the Chicagoland area where I just saw an ad for a police department that's starting pay is $92,000. Now, if I have to go get a bachelor's degree in social work, which one do you think I'm going to go apply at and hope that I find? And, and frankly, we need the police in these rural communities as well. So, uh, uh, you know, an idea like you're going to require a bachelor's degree in social work and assume that, and again, the challenge for me is where is the data that shows that there would be a successful outcome to requiring a bachelor's in social work or a bachelor's in anything for that matter. And I know that for me personally, I've been in this business for again, more than 30 years. Um, I started with a GED as a high school dropout. I've gone back to school, gotten my master's degree, do a fair amount um, of teaching and consulting, but that would have excluded me. Um, and that troubles me in a lot of ways because I think my career's turned out okay, far from perfect, um, but I know that I've made a difference for a couple of people because they've told me that. Um, and we're going to exclude people who just want to be in the profession for all the right reasons, who want to make a difference, who are willing to put in the effort and learn and give up holidays and birthdays and work midnights. And in, in lieu of a requirement for a bachelor's degree where there's no data that says that's the, the right direction for us to take in law and enforcement. I, I can't even imagine what that degree would do to help someone. I, I mean, I would tell you, I have, I have a PhD in psychology specialized working you know and then got a specialization and working with folks at high, with borderline personality disorder of lots of crisis and lots of exciting behaviors i had to get specialized training for all of the more exciting behaviors and then when i went into suicidology i had an absolute dearth of training um, and that's something i don't think people realize for for folks at high risk of suicide um, only only one out of every 10 licensed mental health providers could pass a competency exam for risk assessment and intervention at the 70% level. I don't know that 
more like that advanced university education necessarily gives you um, a, this highly specific job skill set. And, and I think that there's an overvaluing of that kind of education as, as informing the work that you do versus good training in that profession. What do you think can be done to improve the handling of mental health crises? So from a law enforcement perspective, I, I think the need for substantive data is real. I think, again, there are a lot of programs, some that we've talked about, many others that are in pilot or that are in their infancy. The reality is we need a whole lot more data in order to figure out what works for each of these different communities that we have talked about. The other part of that is then what we need is substantive funding. This conversation about we're gonna take funding, defund the police and redirect funding. As I said earlier, all great and good. We would love to have more mental health resources, but if you're adding training requirements to law enforcement, that requires funding for us to be able to do. Where do we get that funding? There's already tremendous number of unfunded mandates that are coming state by state from different federal laws. Um, all of these happen to be the burden of the taxpayer, the same person, same people um, that we're challenging with all these other issues. There's no magic money tree that local law enforcement or state law enforcement can tap into uh, for training. All of it costs money. All of it needs research. So let's talk about money because I love to talk about money. Uh, so, uh, you know, this is one of those deals where in the U.S. and and this is uh, this is the good news is this will be like this will be exciting. No one knows in this conversation like how they're going to feel about what we're going to say because anytime you want to talk about taxes, people get stirred up. I'm I'm not interested in talking about money like in terms of taxes, but I want us to be very clear: mental health crisis is expensive. Whether you fund it uh, with uh, local or federal tax dollars, in which, whichever way you do that, or whether you pay for it in disruptions, um, you pay for it in your family's inability, you know, your family having downward social drift because there's not social infrastructure there to help you with what's happening, whether you pay for it in you missing your job because your family member is in constant crises and you have to deal with law enforcement interactions, but the crisis system can't help you stabilize that. It, it, there is no universe where you get to say you're not going to pay for it and not actually pay for it. And, and however you want to pay for that, let's start with that ground truth. Now, when I talked about that system with the NHS, where they have law enforcement, a paramedic, and a mental health clinician uh, in an unmarked car, what they did was they looked at a whole bunch of outcomes. So they looked at they looked at, you know, what what did the incidences get wrapped up faster? Were they wrapped up with less force or less use of police intervention? Did they have less injury? Did they did they get a person to a hospital and the person stay there? How expensive was it to provide this care? And under and I and and let me tell you what, uh, however you feel about England's medical care system and the way that they handle resources, I'll tell you what I've seen the dollars. And that they were able to do a tremendous amount of care for much less resources because they controlled, and Roy was very clear, they controlled and collected data about outcomes and they would they run pilots and they were very specific about measuring a lot of things and then tweaking the system. The, uh, so that when we when they were able to manage a mental health crisis where they were taking care of the safety issues, the, the issues that may involve legally suspending a person's you know, civil rights, which police officers could do. They can suspend people's civil rights to address important social matters. 
the medical instances of, you know, keeping people medically safe and then getting accurate sort of disposition about clinically what's happening and, and getting a person routed the correct way at the right level of care. Those things, every indice that they measured, those things worked better. So I, I want to see us train law enforcement officers so that they're good partners in, in helping manage a mental health crisis. But I would hate to give anyone the impression that law, enforce off, law enforcement officers are the appropriate profession for sole ownership of mental health crisis management. Things I do think matter. And these are anecdotal. I would, I'm, I agree with Roy. Uh, scientists wait for the data to tell you what really works or not. But things that I've seen be effective are educating um, police officers on some of the fundamentals of uh, human physiology when they're in crisis state. So when we've looked, when we've looked at those issues, or when I've done training with law enforcement units, I do a lot of very concrete explaining about the the brain in crisis. At, like a machine and explaining a bunch of things that you can sort of see and track and notice when you're helping a person in crisis. So I think really helping them, it, it, instead of it being an ambiguous or sort of soft or fuzzy science, like making it very, very concrete and mechanistic, I think that's really important. Um, I think um, helping helping law enforcement have some some ways of thinking about mental health crisis and how it applies to the work they do. So Roy did a great example where Roy is very educated in his profession. So he says, mental health crisis touch a lot of the things we do. It's a challenge to not become indifferent or callous to it. It's a it's a challenge to to see the see the problem and still keep providing the care and providing good professional coping skills with that. I think um, training is really helpful, right? We train pilots, we, we train people, you know, if you're flying a plane, all the people who are involved in your flight have a lot of training, but they also have checklists and very, very clearly defined concrete systems that help identify safety issues or help identify process improvement issues. And so along with that training, I think um, providing police uh, units with the, or law enforcement or first responder units, because this could be a lot of folks, right? But helping providing with guidance to develop their own systems, because I, I want, I think Roy did a great job of explaining that police officers are human with a lot of variability and crisis systems are difficult with a lot of variability. Um, you can't standardize a crisis and you can't standardize a police officer, but what you can do is standardize um, processes and systems and make them easy to enact consistently. And so I would say, along with good training, what you want are these good processes, good support of them, good partnerships and good collection. Thank you to Dr. Foreman and Roy for coming on the podcast to share their knowledge with us today. If you have any questions or topic suggestions for future episodes, please send us an email at podcast at ncbrt.lsu.edu. Make sure you subscribe to the LSU NCBRT Preparedness Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and we'll see you again next time.